to 1 Peter chapter 3. To 1 Peter chapter 3. While you're making your way back to your seats, one of the things that we want to do this month is we uh, kind of recognize Black History Month. I like to do this. Uh, I'm a reader, so uh, I like books. Uh, and I wanted to recommend to you, each week I'm going to recommend to you a book that I think would be uh, helpful for you, that would be encouraging for you if you've not read it. And so the, the book that I want to recommend to you this week um, is, is a book by Dr. Carl Ellis Jr., and it's Free at Last. Uh, and what, what Ellis does in this is he, he traces the streams, the northern stream and the southern streams of those fighting for uh, racial equity in the United States. And, and he, he takes men like Martin Luther King Jr., he takes men like Malcolm X, and he, he shows uh, some of the strides that they made, but he also is very careful to, to analyze them through the Word of God, arguing that any movement that's not built on the Word of God is a movement that is bound to fail. But one of the reasons that this book is so significant is at the end of this book, um, he calls for the next generation, what he calls the Joshua generation, the generation that will take this, this pursuit of racial equity into the promised land and into that final stage. And so this book is a very encouraging book. It, it traces a lot of the history um, of what's taken place in the United States, but it grounds everything in the Word of God. Uh, Dr. Carl Ellis Jr. is an incredible man, and this book is worth the read. All right? This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to look through verse 17. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning, I'm actually going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 17. This is what Peter writes. He says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready to at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of our good conduct as mission. Our good conduct as mission. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the series that we'll be bringing to a close this week as, we, or as we've examined for the past month or so our mission as a church. I pray as we consider this idea of our good conduct as mission that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we're ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Realized I didn't introduce myself, so if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as uh, one of the pastors here at New Breed, serving um, the function of the lead pastor alongside three other incredible men, although after this morning, I'm wondering if we just should have hired Tessa instead, but uh, no, thank you for that, sister. We, we really appreciate it. Um, we're going to be concluding our series this, this week that we've been looking at entitled The Mission, where we have just been examining what our mission is as a church. We've kind of written that our mission is we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And so we're going to conclude this week, um, barring the Lord doing something this week to change my mind, this will be the last sermon in this series, and I want us to consider this idea of our good conduct as part of our mission. You know, recently I had one of those parenting moments that reminded me of when I was a child. Uh, I found myself saying something that I had heard my parents say to me a lot growing up. See, I grew up in a house with two brothers, so there were three, three boys. I'm in the middle. We're relatively close in age, so you can imagine there were some times uh, when we weren't as well behaved as we should have been, if that's hard to believe. 
Uh, I actually, I, I try not to tell stories about other people, and since this involved my parents, I try to not tell stories without them, like, signing off on it, so I let my mom read it, and she was, and when I got to that line of we weren't as behaved as we, we could have been, she said, oh, I thought you were going to tell the story of when you and your brother got in a fist fight in the Oxmoor Mall parking lot. Uh, I don't know why that was the story. She thought, I said, I don't remember that, and I said to her, I said, well, did I win? My dad leaned, dad leaned forward and said, nope. Uh, <laughs> so... We, uh, we had some moments where we weren't as behaved as we could have been, but the grace of God, amen? Uh, but we had some moments. Now, now, as a parent myself with two daughters, I understand the sixth sense that my parents had when you take your children out in public. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You take your children out of public, and you just know it has the potential to be a rough outing. So Growing up, I'm assuming it was mostly at those times when my brothers and I were at each other's throats or had a particularly rough day. I remember times when we were getting out of the car somewhere and my dad would stop us and say something along the lines of, All right, you can nod in agreement if you've heard this before, don't forget, you represent me in there. But it was interesting because even as a child, he never had to explain to me what that meant because I knew exactly what he was saying. He was not saying that when you get in there, you better say all the right things that make me look good. He wasn't saying that when you get in there, you better answer every question in a way that looks you smarter, makes you look smarter than everybody else in the room. No, what he was saying was quite simple, that the way you act says something about more than just you. It says something about your father as well. So act right. And as I recently found myself repeating those same words that I heard growing up to my daughter, those words started to preach to me a little bit. Because maybe, just maybe, one of the struggles the church faces is we've misunderstood what God means when he says that we represent him. See, we've taken that to mean that we have to have all the right theology, and theology is important. But we've taken that to mean that we have to be able to answer all the theological, philosophical, and existential questions posed about the nature of God. We've taken it to mean that we have to have the right ecclesiology and soteriology. We have taken that to mean that we have to politically outwit our opponents and silence our critics. But maybe we've missed the point. Perhaps when God says, you represent me, he's not thinking at all about what you say, but about how you live in this world. Author John Dixon says it like this. He says, in naming us his children, our heavenly father has entrusted his reputation, his public image in the world to you and me. And how we act as a group and as individuals often affects how people think about God. In other words, don't forget, you represent me down there. And this morning, as we bring our series to a close, I want you to see how our good conduct, the way we live our lives, is of foundational importance to our mission. Again, our mission statement. Hopefully you got it memorized by now. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. So if anybody comes and asks you what's New Breed all about, this is what you say. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. Now, if you remember back to the second sermon in this series, you remember that we talked about thinking more of promoting the gospel in both our gathering and our going compared to just proclaiming the gospel. I'll give you a short recap, right? If you missed that, proclaiming the gospel is significant. It is massive. It is the way people come to know Jesus. But God has given us other avenues other than just proclamation to make his glory known to those that we encounter. And so we need to think about promoting the gospel. So that includes proclaiming the gospel, but it's bigger than that. We promote the gospel with our presence in this world. We promote the gospel with our worship. We promote this gospel with what we spend our money on. We promote this gospel when we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us into salvation. We want to promote the gospel with every aspect of our life. i got to slow down. My watch thinks I'm working out. I'm not. <laughs> not yet. So we want to be a people who promote the gospel. 
And we talked about the significance, right? I mentioned to you a while back that I think we've actually done a disservice to the church by calling every Christian an evangelist. Because not every Christian is an evangelist. That is a specific gifting listed in Ephesians 4 that God has given to the church. Now, all of us must be about sharing our faith, but not all of us are gifted as evangelists. So does that mean we get to tap out of the mission? Absolutely not. Because if we think in terms of promoting the gospel, there are multiple ways that we can engage in this idea of making disciples wherever life exists. We need people on mission in every sphere of life through the variety of avenues that God uses to draw people to himself. And in our text this morning, what Peter is, is challenging the people of God with, what he is reminding us of in the midst of great trial is to never forget the significance of your conduct as you represent God and you live on mission in this world. So I want to show you that this morning. There are three truths that I want, I want to draw out this morning from our text. Here's the first. We need to prioritize our good conduct. We need to prioritize our good conduct. Look again at verse 13. Peter says, Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? So here's what Peter's doing. Peter's writing this letter for a purpose, right? We got to give context. And we just jumped in the middle of a book. Um, good Bible reading is never just pick out random verses without trying to think through the context of what's going on. So we, we got to try to understand what Peter's doing. We have to put ourselves there. Uh, at, at the very beginning of 1 Peter, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he tells us that he's writing, Peter's writing to saints living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are his brothers and sisters who are scattered throughout Rome. And they're facing some of the fiercest persecution that the earliest church would ever face. I mean, these are Christians. I mean, this is hard for us to imagine in our American context, but these are Christians who love Jesus, who believe the gospel, and they are being crucified for that. They're being imprisoned for that. They're being denied access to the local benefits that Roman citizens normally get because they're Christians. They're forced to compete in the Roman games, which will assuredly mean an inhumane death. They are being persecuted like you and I have never experienced. And so Peter, again, we got to put ourselves there. He's writing this letter to them. Right? I, I imagine it, right? He's, he's awakened one morning by the Holy Spirit. Gets up. Grabs his favorite apostle mug, makes a cup of coffee, sits down at his desk, grabs his pen, his parchment, prays for the Spirit to lead him as he is preparing to write to these Christians, his brothers and sisters that he loves, those who have been called by God to represent the kingdom of God on earth but are suffering. And what does he say to them? Well, he begins with the most important reminder. He begins by reminding them that God has saved them, that they are, they are reminded that they are washed by the blood of the Lamb and they are being refined for an eternal glory, that there is hope not in this world but in the world to come. He reminds them that they are called to be holy as God is holy, that they are set apart, they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belongs to God to give praise to God. But that doesn't really tell them what to do. That's just a reminder of who they are. But what do they do with the fact that they are facing fierce persecution like, like the church had never experienced before? What does it mean to be a royal priesthood when the world hates you? How should you make known the glory of God in the midst of a world that is hostile to them and hostile to the God they serve? Well, midway through chapter 2, Peter turns his attention to how they should live. Notice what he doesn't say to them. He doesn't tell them that an election is coming up and a particular candidate in Rome will make this nation a Christian nation. He doesn't tell them to concede and just to get it, give in to everything that Rome is telling them so that they can fit in. He doesn't tell them to storm the palace and overthrow the Roman government. No, instead Peter calls them to have good conduct and reminds them of the benefit of it, of living ordinary life with good conduct. And so Peter begins this section and he says, who then will harm you? So he's posing this question in light of what he has just said. So before verse 13, in verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 34. 
Look, look at verses 10 through 12. He says, For the one who wants to live or to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So Peter uses Psalm 34 to make an argument. Here's his argument, right? We've got to follow his argument to understand his question in verse 13. The argument is this. If you want a good life, okay, I'll give you a secret to it right here. You want a good life, but not a life absent of suffering because we'll talk about it in a minute. Everyone suffers. Doesn't matter if you are righteous or not, you're going to suffer. But if you want a good life regardless of the suffering, If you want to love life, even in the midst of difficulty, here's the key. Be a person of good conduct. Keep your tongue from evil and deceit. Turn away from evil deeds. Do good. Seek peace. But he tells you why. What makes it good? Look at verse 12. This is such an an incredible verse. He says, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are are open to their prayer. But look at what he says on the flip side. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me say that another way. What what the psalmist is trying to say is that the Lord doesn't pay attention to the prayers of the wicked. The Lord doesn't have his gaze fixed on those who are content in their wretchedness. Now, I want you to see this. The motivation for our good works is ultimately because it pleases God. And here's here's the blessing. And as a result, God looks upon you with favor. And if God looks upon us with favor, our life is good regardless of the circumstances. See, we got to shift our paradigm a little bit, church, about what the good life is. I know we might not say it, but many of us have bought into the lie that the good life is the house with the picket fence, with the kids and the dog, with the comfortable bank account, with the 401k, filled with retirement money, friends all around us, that, that, that that's the good life. But Peter's trying to get them to shift their perspective. We need to shift our perspective. He says, no, 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 the good life, it doesn't depend on all of that. Because you can have the house, the white picket fence, the full bank account, the vacations, the friends. You can have all the stuff of this world and be miserable. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on you. See, the good life is knowing that when you suffer and struggle, that God sees you and he hears you. That's what he says if you keep reading in Psalm 34. Peter doesn't quote it, but he says in verse 17 and 18, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. And he rescues them from all their troubles. Here it is. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So Peter is saying, don't miss this. As a result of good works. As a result of good works that come about because of your faith. It says God sees you and God hears you. And so Peter is able then to encourage them with this question in verse 13 about their conduct. If all this is true, if if you are trusting in the Lord and you are walking faithfully with lives where, where you are pursuing what is righteous, what is good, what is just, where you are keeping your mouth from lies and deceit, and if the Lord's eyes and ears are turned towards you, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? So it's both a question and a challenge. See, what he's not saying is if you keep doing good, eventually the hardship of living for Jesus will go away. Now, that's not, that's not what he says. He's saying that if the Lord is pleased with you, what can the world really do to you of any eternal consequence? Basically, he's saying in a different way the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That this world can throw the best day of God at us. But if the eyes of the Lord are on us and the ears of the Lord hear us, what can they do? Ultimately, the world can do nothing of any eternal 
consequences if you are faithfully walking in obedience to God. Again, Peter's trying, he's trying to get them to shift their perspective in the midst of this suffering. He's trying to get them to view their conduct and their suffering through the lens of eternity. And this is the same view that we have to have. We have nothing to fear from this world. Because we got to be honest for just a second, right? We can do a little heart work here. We just got to be honest about the fact, church, that the reason that so many of us as Christians are scared to act like Christians is because we're terrified of what the world may do to us or say to us. You know how I know it's true? Because so often we are quick to jump on the good conduct that the world's good with. The world cares about justice right now. So do we. We can jump in on that one. Yeah, but we are silent about sexual ethics because we are so afraid of what the world will say and do to us. We're silent about so many things that the world doesn't deem as okay. And if we're honest, often we're willing to sacrifice God seeing us and hearing us for something as weak as the acceptance of this world. And what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to get them to see that their good conduct may not bring earthly ease. In fact, it won't bring earthly ease, but it will, it will bring a divine reward. But it's also a challenge, too, because notice this. He says, who then can harm you if you are devoted to good works? And so the challenge for us, then, is what does it mean to be devoted to good works? That word there translated devoted in the CSB Bible, that's what I read from. Uh, I don't know what your Bible says. If you've got the ESV, your, your Bible probably says zealous, which is a better translation, because the Greek word there is zelotai. Uh, it's actually where we get the word zealot from, to be a zealot. You know, one of the 12, Luke 6, identifies Simon as Simon the zealot. Zealots were revolutionaries. They are revolutionaries. Zealots are the ones that want to change the world by any means necessary. Often they're labeled zealots because of the extreme measures that they're willing to go to change the world. Throughout history, zealots have been known to kill, to assassinate, to deceive. They've rebelled against governments, whatever they could do to bring about what they believe to be right and good. And Peter says, hey, you be one of them, but just for what's good. Be that devoted to good conduct. Now track with me here. The idea of being zealous for good conduct pushes us beyond simply doing good when opportunities present themselves to pursue opportunities to show good conduct. Let me give you an example. It's one thing to give your money to someone in need when they ask for it. That's good. But what Peter is calling us to is to find those people and do good before they ever have to come and ask you for it. It's one thing to care for the widow and the orphan when they walk through our doors. It's another thing to be so devoted to good that we go find them and seek them out where they are. And what Peter is saying is to move beyond moments of good to be consumed with good. Why? Because it's what God has called us to. And check this out. It's what God has saved us for. Right? You remember Ephesians 2? I quote it so much. I love Ephesians 2, right? It's my easiest gospel presentation ever, right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You're by, all, uh, by nature all children of wrath. Like, I'm going to give you the short version. He's saying, like, hey, every one of us is born in sin. Like, if you, if you don't know that this morning, every one of you is born in sin. Nobody had to teach you how to rebel. You figured that out all by yourself. And because we have rebelled against God, we are by nature children of wrath. We deserve to be punished by God, but God loves us so much, right? In the middle of Ephesians 2, there, verses 1 through 9, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. That's the reason we celebrate. It's because for by grace you have been saved. Because God loves us even though we don't deserve that love. That God cares for us even when we rebelled against him. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. For you were saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift so that no one should boast. But then Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. For, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Here it is. For good works. Why did he save you? So that you could represent him through your good works. And they're good works that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. 
We have to prioritize good conduct. Prioritize living lives that are marked by not just moments of good, but a pursuit of good. And you might be thinking, all right, we got it. We get it, Michael. Our good conduct matters. What in the world does this have to do with our mission? Thank you for asking that question. I love having a church that is so in tune as you all. It's the right question. Two, two, Two answers to that. What in the world does this have to do with our mission? Well, here's the first. Our mission is to make disciples. We will reproduce what we are. And so if we are not devoted to good works, the people that we reach will not be devoted to good works. In some ways, we we know this to be true, that we reproduce. I've learned this as a parent. It's been one of the hardest lessons for me as a parent, right? Like, I have come to grips with the fact that if I am raising whiny children... They're learning it from somewhere. And maybe I whine a little bit more than I realize. I'm reproducing what I am. I remember telling my daughter, this is, again, confession, it's good for the soul, bad for the reputation. Um, <laughs> I remember telling my daughter, like any good parent would, I think I said it like this too, like, yo, you spend too much time on a screen. Like talking to her like she's a grown woman. And she said, I just get on my screen when you get on yours. Well, <laughs> we, produce, we reproduce what we are. That's why Paul says, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because he knows that if he can look like Jesus and live accordingly, then he will reproduce what he is. So part of the reason our good conduct matters for a mission is we want to, we exist to make disciples who then go show off Christ where life exists. And so if we are not living like disciples who are showing off where Christ Uh, showing off Christ where life exists through our good conduct, through our worship, through our presence, through our proclamation. If we are not doing that, we will not produce that. And so it matters for us as a church. And we don't do it just because we want to grow our numbers. We do it because we believe God is worthy of every soul declaring that he is God and he is God alone. He is worthy of everyone crying out. And so we will cry out. But here's the second thing it has to do with our mission. It's actually the second point of our sermon this morning. See how I did that? That's good. Our good conduct will lead to gospel proclamation. Our good conduct will lead to gospel proclamation. Look at what he says there in verses 14 and 15. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts... Regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for a reason for the hope that is in you. So what Peter is saying again is not that your good conduct will prevent suffering. In fact, good conduct may be the very reason you face suffering. But the world and the suffering they inflict is not to be feared. He says instead, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. And what, what Peter is doing is he's, he's making the argument by restating Isaiah 8.13. He's, he's making the argument that you cannot fear the world and fear the Lord. So if you're afraid of the world, you are not fearing the Lord. I mean, that's what Roman, or Isaiah 8.13 calls us to. It says, if you regard, or you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy, only he should be feared, only he should be held in awe. Like it goes back to what we just talked about a moment ago. What do you care more about? What do we care more about, pleasing God or pleasing the world? Because we cannot do both. But I want you to notice this. Peter says, if you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Now, the way he writes this is actually interesting. Um, I don't get into, like, the original languages too much unless it really does make a difference. But, but the Greek here is actually very interesting because it doesn't actually say you are blessed. There, there is no definitive verb there are. It's not there. He basically says, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you blessed ones. He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. One commentator notes this. He said, it, the way that it's written in the original language, it most naturally indicates that the blessing that comes at the same time as the suffering, not after it. Hey, that'll preach right there. 
that the blessing and the suffering come together. How often do we see the blessing of God as God removing suffering from us? And what Peter's trying to say is like, no, 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 you are blessed ones when you're in the midst of the suffering. That the blessing of God in your life can actually be suffering. Well, how do I know it? Go back to Psalm 34. The Lord is near, not to those who have been delivered from the suffering. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And sometimes it is in the midst of suffering where you are closest with the God who is intimately knowledgeable of suffering. Because he is a God who has suffered on our behalf. And sometimes we've got to stop seeing the blessing of God as the removal of suffering. And sometimes the suffering is the blessing of God. It is God reminding us that he is near, that he hears us, that he sees us, that he walks alongside of us, that God is near to the brokenhearted. Oh, how I wish we would want the nearness of God more than we want the ease of this world. That if God is in the midst of fire, put me in the fire because I'd rather be with him than in the comfort of my home. What Peter is arguing is that part of the blessing is the opportunity it presents. See, there's blessing in suffering because of the opportunity that it presents. Notice the second part of what he says in verse 15. He says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Here it is, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is an interesting verse. This is a verse that I actually think gets taught wrong a lot of the times. This is a verse that's often taught as the apologetics verse, right? Apologetics is defending your faith, right? Um, Defending the hope that's in you. But we teach it as if what Peter is calling us to is to be prepared to give a defense so that we can then go out and give that defense to the world. But the context actually doesn't really point us to that, right? The verse is not saying that you have to have all the evangelistic training so you can go into the world to share your faith. Side note, I want you to have evangelistic training so that you can go into the world and share your faith. That's just not what this verse says. We'll pull that one from a different verse. The verse is not about having all of the philosophical answers to go debate atheists about why Christianity is true. No shade on those who operate in that arena. I wish I was one of them. Y'all are smarter than me. That's a good thing, but that's not what this verse is about. What this verse is saying in the context of good conduct is we want to live lives of such incredible goodness that it makes no sense to the world. And when we suffer as a result of that goodness and still pursue more goodness, it should be so strange to the world that they come and ask you why you are the way that you are, and then you are ready to give a defense For the hope that you have, the reason that you will still cling to Jesus when the bottom falls out, the reason you will still praise God when death comes and sickness comes and hardship comes, the reason that you will hold fast to him when it appears like he's not holding fast to you because you know that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It is that you will live such extraordinary lives in ordinary things that people come and say, what in the world is up with this person? And then you get to give a defense for the reason and the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. That word there, defense, apologia in the Greek, it's a legal term. It's the word that Paul uses in Acts 22 when he's being charged with inciting a riot. And he asks if he can speak to defend himself against the questions and the charges that were leveled against him. Maybe part of the reason we don't understand this verse is ain't nobody leveling charges and questions against us because our life just don't look that different. Like we want to know how to share our faith with those who don't know. But this verse isn't about that. This is a verse that says our goodness should be so unique that it will lead people to just ask questions. Our lives will be so different that people will ask us why we live the way that we do. And when that happens, hear me, we don't give a defense of our actions. We give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. We give a defense that righteousness matters to the Lord, that our hope is in Jesus who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our hope is in the fact that God has shown us mercy and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to live this way. Even in Psalm 34, right? You go back to the entire context of that Psalm that Paul or that Peter quotes from in verses 10 through 12. The entire context of Psalm 34 is that the the conduct of Israel will be the means that they evangelize the world. 
It's an idea of your conduct being the catalyst for mission. And listen, that idea wouldn't have been foreign to the Jews. Like, we, we're so inundated that the only way we can do mission is to go and tell, that we missed that, like, the first two-thirds of the book, that wasn't the main way they did missions. It just wasn't. It was a come and see. Come and see how unique our lives look and worship God as a result of that. Like, the Jews got this. Israel understood. It was part of their purpose. I mean, even in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it says, God says, now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all peoples. He says this, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. And so what God is saying there is basically what Peter says earlier in 1 Peter, you are to be a a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people set apart for God's own possession. Why are they set apart? So that the nations can look at them and say there's something different about them. I wonder what it is. And then Israel gets to declare the excellencies of the God who chose them when they did nothing to deserve to be chosen. One commentator, Bruce Walkie, says it like this, the nations on their part qualify themselves for the blessing by recognizing that Abraham and his obedient nation are possessed by God's power to mediate abundant and effective living and then be praying for God's blessing upon Abraham and his nation. Let me paraphrase that, that the people of God ought to live such lives of flourishing that people want to know how in the world are you living like that and they get to say because we're God's. He has called us. He has set us apart. And we live for him and him alone. Peter is calling the people to live such incredible lives of good conduct that people have to stop and ask, what is different? Why do you live this way? What pushes you to be so different from the world? It can be that very conduct that is so counter to the way the world does things that gives opportunity for a hearing. You know, the Bible... The Bible says we can live lives that actually make the gospel look attractive. This is the very thing that Paul calls Titus to. You remember Titus 2, 10? No? Cool, I'll share it with you. Just try and get y'all, make sure you're with me. After calling Titus to live a, good, a life of good conduct and then to lead others in lives of good conduct, he says this in Titus 2, 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. All right, now listen, honesty time again. Here it is. We come from a faith tradition that has a rocky relationship with works. We do. If you didn't know this, we're a Protestant church. You're like, we're what? I didn't sign up for that. Let me explain what that means. Basically means we're not Catholic. That's what, that, that's what it means. We are a church that kind of came out of the Reformation. And let me give you the simple version of the Reformation. Please, God, don't ever let one of my church history professors hear me do this. I'm going to give it to you in like a sentence. We needed to understand that we're saved by grace through faith and not works. That's it. That's what the Reformation was all about, is that the Catholic Church had added in salvation by works, and there were some guys who, st who stood up and said, nah, that ain't what the Bible says. Like, we're, we're saved for good works, but we're not saved by good works. But as a result, right, I fear in our attempt to highlight grace, we've actually downplayed the significance of works as they relate to our faith at all. I think we're so scared of works that we just throw them out. It's grace. It's all grace. I love grace. I'm a product of grace. I'm saved by grace. But if you throw out the works, you save the reason that grace was given to you. Because our good conduct is meant to be a conduit through which Jesus saves people. I mean, think about this. Immediately before this, in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says this. In the same way, wives, listen to this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if they disobey the word... They may be won over without a word by the way you live. I don't know how to get around that. Ain't no proclamation happening. It's that we're going to live lives of such good conduct that these, these wives win their husband purely by their faithfulness to the Lord. Or, or take 1 Peter 2.12, right? Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Conduct yourselves honorably. So that when they slander you as evildoers, listen to this, they will observe, not your words, not your testimony, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. It's almost like there's something to how we live our lives. Our works can, be, can open the door for the gospel to take root in people's lives. But that will only happen 
if we are zealous for good works and then willing to give a defense for the hope that we have when our good works raise questions. But notice this, the beginning of verse 16, even our defense, even how we speak, when we give that defense is to be marked by good conduct. Verse 16, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. Give the defense of your faith. I'm a, this is the Michael translation. It's a great translation. Defend the faith without being a jerk. Without being a jerk will work. We'll stay with jerk. Look at the Holy Spirit. Look at God. Amen. Good conduct. Woo. I had something to say. Do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. And we have to reckon with this, church, myself included. We have to reckon with the fact that often as Christians, what we fail at most is giving our defense with gentleness, with reverence and respect. We are often living lives that look exactly like the world, and we wonder why our gospel is anemic. And if you don't believe me, just go on social media and look at how Christians act. Like, we're so big on this, like, I'm just going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak the truth. Where is the love? We need the truth, but we need the love too. We act just like the world. We slander and call it accountability. We gossip and call it guarding the flock. We cancel people and then just call it a consequence. We delight in the downfall of the broken and we call it justice. And we wonder why our gospel is weak. I'm going to say it and you can do what you want with it. I'm going to leave it here. I'm not your Holy Spirit. I think for some of you, the holiest thing that you could do this week is to go home and delete your social media and never get on it again. So that you can actually live a life of good conduct that makes the gospel look glorious. Because your Twitter feed makes God look like a jerk. In 1651, Puritan Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote these words that I think are just as needed 400 years later. He said, take heed of yourself, lest your example contradict your doctrine. Unless you lay a stumbling block before the blind or maybe the occasion of their ruin. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labor. Guard your life and your doctrine. See, we have to be people where the lives we live match our declaration. And if we declare that God is good, then we have to be a people marked by a perceivable goodness. The, that very goodness will be the means by which doors are open for us to proclaim the gospel that has saved us and given us a hope that it allows us to endure in goodness even when it causes suffering. i got to move on. I know I'm running out of time. But in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, I'll give you an example of this. John Dixon tells the story of a man named Tim Winton. Tim Winton's actually a celebrated author. He's well known, um, just mostly in Australia. So we're, we Americans don't pay much attention to him. Um, He's a celebrated Australian author. And he was recently being interviewed by ABC News, and the topic of faith came up and how Tim developed his faith in Jesus. And he tells his story about how when he was five years old, his father, who was a police officer, was in a horrible accident. He was knocked off his motorcycle by a drunk driver while on duty, um, and it left him in rough shape. Uh, couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't move. Um, Tim actually explains that he said, my father was, he still looked like my father, but he was a different person after that, kind of like a shell of who his father was. He was a big man, and he was in a wheelchair, and he couldn't get himself around, and so Tim's mom tried as best she could to care for him, but she had trouble lifting him, and as a result, he was never being bathed because she couldn't get him into the tub and get him out. And one day, after hearing about the accident, a man named Lynn Thomas showed up. He knocked on the door, didn't know this family. Um, he said he'd heard about the accident. Um, you got to imagine it in an Aussie accent, but uh, apparently the guy said something like, I, I heard your husband's a little crooked. Uh, I don't know what that means, so it's Australian, I guess. But basically said, how can I help? Lynn was just a Christian from the local church, and he just wanted to do good. Lynn, not knowing the family, began to serve. And he would show up every day and carry Tim's father from the bed to the bathroom and would bathe this man that he didn't know 
and he would care for him. And this went on for as long as his father needed it. And Tim recounted that moment, and he said this. He said, it really touched me in that. Regardless of theology or anything else, watching a grown man bother for nothing to show up and wash a sick man, you know, it just affected me. And he said this strangely sacrificial act is the doorway for the Christian faith for the entire Winton family. And Dixon, reflecting on this story, writes this. He says, I have no idea if Lynn Thomas would have even described himself as an evangelist. Somewhere along the way, someone must have shared the Christian message with the Wintons. But according to Tim Winton, the thing under God that most profoundly influenced his family's move toward Christ was the sacrificial act of just one of Christ's followers. And then he said the New Testament would say, hearty, amen. Our good conduct matters to our mission. It won't always lead to earthly comfort or a sorrow-free life. But the eyes of the Lord will see you and his ears will hear you. And along the way, someone might come to know Jesus. Here's the final truth I want to leave you with. I promise I'll move through it quick. The beauty of all of this is that our good conduct will ultimately lead to our vindication. Our good conduct will lead to our vindication. Look at the last two verses. He says, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It's a profound statement from Peter. Let me work backwards to give it to you real quick. So again, verse 17, he says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is a weighty statement. Don't miss the weight of it. Because in essence, what Peter is saying is everybody's going to suffer. You have no option in this life not to. We, we live in a broken world. Suffering is inevitable. But the question is, do you want to suffer for what's righteous or do you want to suffer with, for what's evil? You're going to suffer. What do you want to suffer for? You can suffer for your good conduct or you can suffer for doing evil. But the beauty of suffering for righteousness is that the eyes of God are on you and his ears hear you. But make no mistake, you will suffer in this life. But when we are willing to suffer for righteousness, God himself will vindicate us. In verse 16, it says, Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Why will they be put to shame? Well, we can go back to Psalm 34 to answer that question. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their trouble. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He, is, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversaries, or adversities, I'm sorry. But the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. Here it is. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. How do we know that God will not abandon us when we suffer for righteousness? Because God's proven that already in Jesus. Because Peter says just a few verses later in verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. So Jesus, a righteous man, the most righteous man, suffered as if he was unrighteous, even though he was righteous, and God never abandoned him. Because we read later in verse 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. If everything is subjected to Jesus, then the promise of, of Psalm 34 is unquestionable. That God will not abandon the righteous. That he will not forsake those who are pursuing what is right and what is good. Yes, hardship will come, trial is come, will come, but God will never abandon you in your suffering. He is there in the midst of it with you. God will never abandon you when you pursue his righteousness. So let me bring this series to a close. I want to remind you, there are multiple ways you and I can promote the gospel. There are multiple ways we can fulfill that mission of making disciples where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. 
There are multiple ways we can be on, on mission. But what we have to understand is that God expects us to do them. I said it at the beginning of the series, and I'll say it here at the end. I believe God wants to use Newbreed to do incredible things. And I hope you trust me when I say I don't think that's just speaker embellishment. We have seen God move in ways that make no sense other than maybe, just maybe, God wants to use this group of people to do something for his kingdom. But I am convinced that there are some things that God will not do unless his people are obedient. And so the question is how, not if, how each and every one of us will gather together to collectively make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. But you and I are called to be on mission, and I am excited to see what God will do in us and through us if we actually believe that he wants to use us. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you, you have always been for your people. I thank you that you use your people, God. I thank you for the grace that you have given us. The grace that has called us and empowered us to do the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do. I pray that you would remind us, Lord, the reason that when you saved us, you left us here was because you had something for us to do. And it is an honor and a joy and a privilege to represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be image bearers who reflect his image to a world that has forgotten him. God, give us grace to be on mission. I pray that our worship, that our presence, that our proclamation, that our conduct, that everything that we do would be to represent you well because we believe we represent more than just ourselves on this earth. So give us grace to represent you well. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.